This morning we are beginning a new sermon series called Healthy Church, but before we do that, can we put our hands together for the worship team and the choir? What a remarkable job they did leading us in worship uh, today. You know, if you have your Bibles, by the way, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy. We're going to be in this book for about eight to nine weeks, all the way up to Easter. Uh, So you can go ahead and mark this in your Bible. One of the goals of this series is that we would become a healthy church. What you're going to see in this particular text of scriptures, we travel through it, is Paul addresses Timothy and he gives him a lot of nuggets that he needs to take away on how to protect and guard against the church from becoming unhealthy. And that's something that we want to make sure that we do here as well. We aspire to be a healthy church and walking through this book, we believe, will help us become more and more healthy each and every week. Well, several years ago, a couple years ago, I guess, I saved up all my money and bought a brand new pair of shoes. My wife gave me an allowance for washing dishes and taking out the trash. How many men can say that that happens? Um, And I I saved my money, and I was able to buy uh, a fresh pair of Jordans, some J's. And uh, if you know about Jordans, they're not the cheapest shoe on the, the shelf, and I never thought that I would indulge enough to buy Jordans. Um, But I wanted them, and I saved my money up, took out a lot of trash and washed a lot of dishes, uh, but I ended up getting to buy a new pair, okay? We went to Durham in North Carolina uh, to buy them, and I walked into the store that had boarded up windows because it was just robbed the night before, true story, and I found the pair that I wanted, the cardinal red ones. They look a little bit like this, just in case you want to know what a Jordan shoe looks like. And, uh, And these shoes... They're just shoes. That's all they are. Um, But they cost a lot of money. And I valued these shoes. So when I bought them, I ran out of the store with box in hand, opened them up and showed my wife, who then said, well, you need to put them on. You need to wear them. And at that point, I was faced with attention. I don't know if I ever thought that I was really going to actually wear them. Because I didn't want to ruin them. This shoe was valuable. And if you know anything about Jordans, the one thing you don't want on your J's is a crease. So they make crease guards that go in your shoe. I can't get this one out, but it's in there. And it protects this shoe from getting a crease on the top. And my wife continued to say, you need to put them on, you need to wear them, which I did. And then when I put them on my feet, I started to walk like a penguin. Again. Because I didn't have the crease guards yet, and I did not want to crease the shoe. It was valuable. I wanted to protect it. I wanted to preserve the glory of the Jordan shoe by not getting creases in it. And in many ways, this is exactly what Paul was going to say to Timothy in this text of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1-11. through He's going to say, if you value the church, you're going to protect the church from any creases. If you value the church and you love the church and you appreciate the local body of assembly, you're going to do whatever it takes to guard against anything that that might crease, that might distort, that might defect the body of Christ. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy this morning, and I want to invite you through this series to learn to value the church. And when I talk about the church, I'm not talking about the big C church, the global church, the 
I'm talking about the Little C Church, the local church, your church, Eagles Landing as a church. I want you to value and appreciate who we are as a body of Christ, and I want you to guard this body with everything that you have. And that's kind of what Timothy is being told here by Paul. What's on the table today, where we're headed today, is very simple. It's very clear. A healthy church guards against false teachers. A healthy church guards sound doctrine. A healthy church protects the integrity of the church by guarding against any false teacher creeping in the church and causing creases within the body of Christ. So we're going to begin reading in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The Bible says this. It says, Paul, an apostle. Now that word apostle, all it means is sent one. Okay, so who, one who is sent. So the question is, is if Paul is a sent one, well, who is sending him? says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul's saying, I'm a sent one. Christ Jesus sent me. So Timothy, I'm not writing you just because I have opinions and preferences to express to you. Paul says, I'm writing you because I have a word from God to deliver to you. So let your ears perk up, Timothy. These words you're about to read, they're not from me at all. These words you're about to read are from Jesus Christ by command of God. It says in verse 2, to Timothy, this is who Paul is writing to, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. This section of scripture, these first two verses, they are known as the greeting. That's why your Bible in italics, maybe not bolded, above it says the greeting, right? Because it's known as the greeting. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Well, who is Timothy? We're going to be in his book for eight to nine weeks, so who is Timothy? Timothy was the pastor of the church of Ephesus, okay? Most people would say he was the pastoral representative of the church of Ephesus. Paul met Timothy um, way back in Acts, and when Paul met Timothy, Timothy was a young man who was on fire for Jesus, I mean, there was word going around about Timothy because Timothy was hungry for the word of God. He wanted to be taught. He wanted to grow in his faith. He was eager to learn more. He was eager to conform into the likeness of Christ. He was on fire for Jesus. He was telling men and women, boys and girls everywhere about how they too could have a relationship with Christ. And Paul meets this guy, Timothy. And because of Timothy's fire for the Lord Jesus, Paul says, why don't you go on the road with me? Why don't you travel with me? Let me pour into you. Let me in invest into you, let me mentor you. There's obviously something here within your life that you can do forever for the sake of the kingdom. So Paul invited Timothy to travel with him and to be mentored by him. And later, they would often visit the town of Ephesus, but on one of their times going through Ephesus, Paul would leave Timothy in Ephesus while Paul continued to go preach the gospel in other places such as Macedonia. And that's where we kind of see here in this text, Paul received word that Timothy is potentially packing his bags and he's going to leave the church of Ephesus and he's going to take his ministry talents elsewhere. And Paul says, hey, Timothy, I've caught word of this and I'm writing to you to urge you to stay there, stay put, don't leave. There are false teachers who are beginning to infiltrate the church of Ephesus that I've learned about and I want you to stay put so that you can guard against that false teaching. The church is about to enter into a season where they're going to need you more than ever. So stay there and guard the church against any 
false teaching. Fight for health in the congregation. See, Ephesus had a good reputation. It was like New Jordans. Had a, had a great reputation. Ephesus wasn't a church that was known to have a whole lot of creases or defects at this point in its life. But what Paul saw is that if these false teachers infiltrated the church, then they could easily slip away from health into toxicity. And Paul says we have to fight against that. We have to guard against that. So Paul writes this, Tim, this message, this letter to Timothy to protect the health of the church. And by protecting the church against false teachers, he felt like the church would retain or maintain their health. So that's where we're headed. A healthy church guards against false teachers. There's four things in this particular text, chapters, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, that I want to bring to your attention this morning. The first thing is this. You and I, in order for us to be a healthy church, in order for Eagles Landing to be a healthy church, we need to understand the threat of false teachers. We need to understand the threat of false teachers. See, false teachers are an inevitable part or an inevitable reality within the life of any church. False teachers will try to make their way into the life of the church. They weren't trying to get into the church of Ephesus just so that they could hang out and coast. They were trying to get into the church of Ephesus and they'll try to get into the church of Eagles Landing so that they could sneak their false ideologies, their inaccurate perceptions of the gospel, so that they could create their own following, if you will, and in many ways cause the church to be ununified, to be a little bit disrupted, to cause the, un the church to, be, uh, no, to no longer be focused missionally on what it exists to do and be. And whatever they had to do in order for themselves to get inside the church to cause this ruckus they were willing to do. So Paul says like this in verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. We just talked about this. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now don't miss Paul's urgency I mean, you probably read the word right there at the beginning of verse 3, where he says in verse 3, as I urge you. But what you might not have seen is the structure of how Paul is writing. Paul typically, if you go look at any letter, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you just pick a letter and go look at it. Paul would typically start his letter with a greeting, and that's what he does in Timothy. And then he would leave from a greeting into a time of thanksgiving. I thank my God always in remembrance of you. I thank God for who you are and what you're doing and why you exist and, and how, you, how you're carrying out the missional task of the local church. And then after he leaves the season of thanksgiving, then he goes into prayer. He says, man, I pray for you always. He does this in every letter, but here... He skips over the season of gratitude, and he skips over this moment of prayer, and he jumps right into the point of why he's writing the letter to begin with. What does this say? This says that what Paul has to say to Timothy is urgent. 
It's not to say that he doesn't think gratitude is important. It's not to say that he doesn't think letting them know that he's praying for them is important. It's to simply say the reason I'm writing is very important and I got to get to the point as soon as I can. Well, Paul, if you're jumping to the point and it's urgent, what is the actual point? Paul says, we've got to guard the gospel. We've got to guard the the gospel. He comes out of the gate swinging in 1 Timothy saying very clearly, very clearly, we've got to guard the gospel. Now why would Paul think that this is that urgent? Think about it, church. Paul understood that if we lose the gospel, we lose everything. And Paul says if we're going to be a church worth meeting together, then we've got to protect and guard anybody who might try to steal us away from the gospel by taking us to another gospel which isn't a gospel at all. We've got to protect it. We've got to guard against it. Because if we lose it, we lose everything. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What did he say? He said, this is of first importance. What's of first importance? The gospel. Again, because if we lose it, we lose everything. The gospel of Jesus, church, must be our highest priority. If you and I are going to be a healthy church, if we are going to be a healthy church, if Eagles Landing is going to be a healthy church, it's only going to happen because we guard the gospel and the gospel of Jesus becomes our highest priority. This is what makes a healthy church. A healthy church is healthy because the gospel of Jesus is centric to everything that it does. What does that actually mean? It means that Jesus is prioritized in every single thing that we do. It means that Jesus is the center, and not only is he the center, but Jesus is the focal point, and not only is he the focal point, but Jesus is the lifeblood, and not only is he the lifeblood, but Jesus is the foundation, and he's the walls, and he's the ceiling, and he's the roof, and he's everything that we do. It's all about Jesus. We've got to guard that gospel. If not, the church will slide into illness. The church will slide into infirmity. The church will start to get a little sick. And the virus of false teaching that will plague us will not be a virus that only lasts for four to five to seven days. It'll be a virus that is hard to shake. And if we're not careful, it will kill us before we know it. Paul says, We have to guard this gospel. Notice his language. He says, so that you may charge. You know what that translates accurately as? You know, if if you read it in Greek, it doesn't just mean that we may charge, like I'm charging a groom at a wedding. It doesn't mean like we charge, like we're charging someone when we do an ordination service. This word actually translates as we have to deal forcefully with. We have to deal forcefully with certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul uses this word to describe how we are to deal with people who teach false doctrines simply because he says, church, I know the temptation. You're going to be tempted to shy away from approaching and addressing and confronting and even rebuking false doctrine. But you have to deal forcefully with it when you see it. You cannot tolerate it. You cannot say, oh, I'll just talk to them next week. No, you got to get on the phone. You got to talk to them now. We got to protect it. We got to guard against it. We got to fight for it. But what's interesting to me is that Paul doesn't name the people here. He simply says certain persons. It's appropriate if he's going to say certain persons that we at least talk a little bit about these certain people, right? 
I'm going to give you about five ways, and I don't have time to expound on this long today, um, simply for the sake of time, but I want to give you about five different ways that you can identify a false teacher here in our church or even in any other church that you ever might be a part of. First, false teachers typically target spiritual babes. False teachers typically target spiritual babes. What, what do you mean by that? Well, Ephesians chapter 4 says this. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, until we all do this, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God, watch verse 14 in chapter 4, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. What is Paul saying to the church of Ephesus there? What he's saying there is when you're a child, when you're a babe in Christ, you're susceptible to following whoever talks to you about anything that's related to Christ. And what happens is because you're not firmly rooted in the gospel is you're carried about by every wind of doctrine that comes your way. Well, he knows more than I do, so I'll just trust that he's right. And before you know it, you start to see the creases creep up in your own individual life. False teachers go after the minds and the hearts of the vulnerable. Because the minds and the hearts of the vulnerable, when they're eager to learn, they'll listen to anybody. That's why we have to guard against it. So false teachers, typically, they target spiritual babes. Second, false teachers twist the truth. False teachers twist the truth. Second Peter says it this way in chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable, listen, twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. See, false teachers have a unique way of taking the truth of God and smearing just enough error into it that you'll eat it, you'll consume it, and without knowing it, it's poisoned your entire insides. That's what false teachers do. Let me tell you how this looks practically in the church because I think sometimes we, we struggle to identify it. When you sit at a Bible study, let's just say with a group of men, and you go around the table and you take a particular text of Scripture and you say, what does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? Well, what does this mean to you? And what does this mean to you? You are slipping into false teaching, false doctrine. Well, what do you mean, Trey? We do that all the time. Let me tell you why that's important for you to understand. It doesn't matter what the text means to you. What matters is what does the text mean, period. The author that wrote the text wrote it with one intent and with one purpose in mind. What we have to do is dig deep enough into the text to understand the whole context of the Bible and then to understand the context of that book and then to understand the context of the chapter and the text I'm reading as a part of the book, as a part of the Bible, and then that's what it means. It's not open to your own interpretation. It's open only to what the original authorial intent was when he wrote the book. We have to find out, hey, what does this text actually mean? And then we can know what that actually means to us. And usually what that means is this is what he's saying. We ought to start acting in that way. That's how it works. So false teachers, what they do is they twist the truth. Third, false teachers have an unhealthy craving for controversy. False teachers have an unhealthy craving for controversy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is how he concludes his book. 
He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Listen, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. False teachers want to pit you against the voices that God has put in your life. Let me just be more practical, and I'm not saying this self-serving, but God has given you um, pastors to speak into your life. And what false teachers want to do is they want to pit you against those pastors. Pit, Pit you against the truth of God's word where you've placed yourself in submission to. They delight in division. Fourth, false teachers chase fleeting pleasures. They chase fleeting pleasures. Second Peter says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Let me give you some examples of this. And listen, you need to buckle up. Prosperity preachers who target the underprivileged. This is exactly what Peter is alluding to here. And their greed, they will exploit you. They will, they, they, they will take from you what doesn't belong to them in order that they might have gain, like televangelists who spend their time asking you to pay up so that they can continue to live their extravagant lifestyles. Paul's saying we've got to guard against that. Romans 16, 18 says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but they serve their own appetites. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, and many will follow even in their sensuality. What, what, is, what is Peter saying there? They will neglect God's design for sex. They will neglect God's design for marriage. Let me cross the plane here. They will justify atrocities like abortion, and they will neutralize their very sexual ethics that God forbids, like homosexuality, gender identity. They'll do just enough to start to twist your mind and to twist your thinking. And Paul says, we've got to chase hard after that. We've got to fight hard for correct teaching. And then fifth, false teachers don't look like false teachers. They don't look like false teachers. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, for such men are false apostles. Listen, deceitful workmen. What does that mean, deceitful workmen? It It means that these dudes, they're not just sitting on the couch eating Twinkies. They are working hard. By the way, in contrast, he's saying actually, or in comparison, he's saying actually a child of God, a man of God, he should be hardworking. And this false apostle looks like the child of God because he's hardworking too. This, this rids any opportunity from, you know, to, to become a monk and not work hard in the, in the church from our thoughts and our imaginations. He says not only is he hardworking, he says disguising themselves. As apostles of Christ. What does that mean? Hey, if you go to a church that wears a three-piece suit, these false teachers, they're going to be wearing a three-piece suit. If she wears dresses or she wears hats or whatever she might wear, they're going to be wearing that too. They're going to disguise themselves. They're going to look like they fit in. They're going to look like they're a part. There's certainly more ways we could identify false teachers, but that's just a few. The point is we need to be aware that false teachers are threatening to every congregation. The second thing that I want to show you is not only the threat of false teachers, but the fruit of false teachers. 
the fruit of false teachers. False teachers produce false or fake fruit. That's what one of my friends would say. Let me say it this way. False teachers are devoted to the wrong things. Look at 1 Timothy verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4. It says, Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. When, when Timothy says myths, or when Paul says myths here, he's talking about what's fake. Because that's what a myth is. It's fake. There, you, you can't challenge a myth because it's simply not true. It's not real. It's empty. And then he uses the words endless genealogies. It's endless because there's no ending to it. Now understand what the Jews would have been hearing as they read this. The Jews took pride in their family tree. The Jews took pride in their family heritage. In other words, if I have Jesus and I come from a good family tree, then certainly when all of this is said and done, God will let me into heaven. If I have Jesus, plus I come from a good family that had good morals and good behaviors and kept all the laws, then certainly God will look at me and say, man, you deserve to get in. Look at your family tree. Look at where you came from. Look at who, what your mama and your daddy and your grandma and your granddaddy did. But what Paul is being, or telling Timothy here is, man, that's a twisting of the truth. That's not the gospel. When you stand before God, your mama, your daddy, your grandma, your grandpa, they're not going to answer for you. You have to answer for yourself. And if you chose to submit and to surrender to the will and the ways of God. So false teaching leads to false living. False teaching leads to false living. It produces fake fruit. Listen, Jesus plus anything is a perversion of the gospel. The gospel is all about Christ. It's about his life, his birth, it's about his life, it's about his death, it's about his resurrection, it's about him. And Paul says not only is the fruit of false teaching unproductive, but he says it's also kind of counterproductive. It's counterintuitive. He says because it promotes speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. You, you know what stewardship is. We talk about stewardship a lot of times when we're talking fiscally. We talk about it oftentimes when we're talking about how we steward our time and even the gifts that God has given us, such as our treasures or even our talents. Stewardship from God, he says, that is by faith. Stewardship means a proper management of the things that God has given you. That's all it means. That you manage properly the things that God has given you. The most important thing that God has given us is what? Salvation through who? Jesus, it's the gospel. And he's saying we've got to protect that. We've got to steward that. We've got to, we got, we got to protect anything from creeping in. You know, our stewardship, it's reflected in the way that we submit and surrender to Jesus as king. Do you understand that? We steward the gospel best when we are surrendered and we submit to the will and the way of God. That's what produces the right kind of living. So false teachers produce false living. So I showed you the, uh, the fruit of false teachers, but there's a third thing, and I want you to see this. It's the motive of false teachers. The motive of false teachers. Paul's going to compare the motive of his own heart versus the motives of their heart. I think that's very interesting that Paul does this. He says, I want you to see who I am first, because remember, Paul was Timothy's mentor. 
Timothy spends a lot of time with Paul. And Paul's saying, all right, you, you know my heart. I want you to see my heart. And then I want you to pit my heart against their heart. And he begins by showing us his own heart. He says this in verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. Well, it's pure because it comes from the supernatural work of God. And he says, not only is my heart pure, but then he goes further. He says, and it comes from, and in these words, this aim, this charge is, is from love, issues from a pure heart, and a good conscience. This is Paul's way of saying, listen, I've checked my motives at the door. I've made sure that my passion and appeal and my urge to you about this isn't just coming from anywhere. That it's actually coming from God. It's coming from a good conscience. And then he says, and a sincere faith. He says, listen, Timothy, I love the gospel enough that I'm going to contend for it. And we as a body of Christ and you as a pastor there in Ephesus, you need to love the gospel enough that you're going to contend for it too. Paul knew that there would be some who had a significant problem with him calling out false teachers. He knew that. So instead of waiting for it to arise, he just went ahead and got ahead of it. This is what good leaders do. Paul says, listen, when we confront false teachers, you can expect that some false teachers are going to say, well, that's really insensitive. It's really mean, and how super pious of you, and how self-righteous of you, that you would come to me and make this accusation. Paul said, you can expect that. Like, why do you think a false teacher is just going to humbly repent right before you? It's not going to happen. That's not their way of life. And not only did he know that, but he knew that there were going to be some people in the church that were sympathetic to false teachers that they were going to start to chime up a little bit too and say, well, how rude of you, Paul or Timothy, that you would go and rebuke and correct a false teacher. I've known them for 20 years. You can't talk about him or her. And by the way, notice how the church did it the right way. They weren't talking around people. They were talking to people. They had the conversations that were hard, not with their friends. They had their conversations that were hard with the people that had the issue. So Paul gets ahead of it. He says, my charge is from love, from a pure heart, with good conscience and a sincere faith. So we got to pit my heart versus theirs. The most loving thing, church, that you and I can do is to protect the truth of the gospel within the church. So Paul's motives are pure, but what about the teachers? The motive of false teachers is almost always self-promotion. Almost always self-promotion. Look at verse 6. It says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, watch this, without understanding either what they are saying or the things by which they are making confident assertions. This blows my mind. Paul is saying, hey, those people that are false teachers, they're speaking confidently about this stuff, and they don't even know what they're talking about. He says it this way in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He says, I know that there are, or, or that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Isn't that interesting? Not sparing the flock. They're not respecters of persons. Whoever will bite, they're willing to reel in. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. For what purpose, though? Says, to draw away the disciples after them. False teachers, they love a good following. They're all about self-promotion. This is why false teachers seek a platform, typically. They want to be the teacher in the class. If they are not willing to be the teacher, they want to be the co-teacher. 
They want to be a voice of influence in people's lives so that they can, so they can speak in a way that influences them to start to follow. It's because they're really seeking self-promotion, but Paul says that's not what the gospel preachers do. Paul says gospel preachers don't contend with God's glory. Gospel preachers point men and women everywhere back to the person of Jesus Christ. That's what they do. Gospel preachers aren't looking for the applause of men. They're not looking to make people happy, happy and ruffle people or you know and, and fluff people's feathers. They just want people to get Jesus, as Matt said a moment ago, because he's worth it. But I love this line that he includes. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. <laughs> Kayla and I, as you know, a couple of weeks ago, she and I, for the first time, went to New York City. I've said that a couple of times. We went um, to explore uh, an idea that we're, we're doing as a church, and we met with different churches while we were there and attended a church while we were there. But anyway, one of the things that one of my friends who's like, uh, an encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to New York told us, he said, hey, just make sure you get really familiar with your Maps app and with Siri before you go. Like, you won't get lost. You'll be fine if you just know how to function the Maps app. Well, I'm a Google guy. I rarely use the Maps app. So because of a Google guy, they look different. They kind of function different. So I had to learn how the Maps app functioned. And before we went to New York, this friend also called me and said, hey, and by the way, there's another rule of thumb you need to know. And I said, what's that? He said, you're going to get on the wrong train at least once. Just prepare for it. it you'll, you'll notice I'm not in the right direction. Just get off, go across the other side, and you'll head back in the right direction. So prepare for that. So we did, okay? And by the way, we got out of the airport onto our first train, and guess what? We were already headed in the wrong direction. So that's how long it took. But I tell you this because here was what was so fascinating to me. I'm using my Maps app. I'm navigating through New York right off the plane, my very first time in this city. And Siri, or whoever she is that talks to you, she is making confident assertions not only about where I am but where I'm supposed to go. You're going to go left to 5th Street. And I'm looking at it, left to 5th Street. And the whole time I'm going away from 5th Street. And it was confusing. And I would tell Kayla, it's like, it's like she doesn't know where I am. She's telling me she knows where I'm at, and she's telling me which direction to go. And this happened every day. Did it not happen? It happened every single day. But guess what? Every single day, I kept using her. And that's exactly what false teachers do. They know more information than you. You think they're reliable. You put some stock and some weight into them. You listen to their confident assertions, and then you start to follow their, their, their trajectory. And meanwhile, you realize, man, that, that, I'm getting further from where I'm supposed to be, not closer and then the next day you wake up, and the first thing you do is you put your, you know, your, your destination back in. And you start to follow her again. And because I thought my wife thought that I was silly and didn't know how to read a map, uh, my phone died one day, so she had to use hers. And guess what happened? The same thing. <laughs> so I had a little bit of credibility from her knowing, okay, it wasn't him. I know she thought it was me. But that's what sin is like, or that's what false teachers are like. They're a lot like Siri. They make confident assertions, and you think because they know more than you, sounds reasonable, you start to follow. So the motive of false teachers is always to lead you away from the truth, not towards the truth. And then there's a fourth thing I want you to see, the false gospel of false teachers. I want you to see the false gospel of false teachers. It's a totally different gospel than what you and I preach here every single week. False teachers teach a false gospel. It makes sense. That's why they're called false teachers. They have a misunderstanding of the law. Look at verse 8. 
It says, now we know that the law was good if one uses it lawfully. So the law is a good thing, you just have to use it the right way. Understanding this, that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. False teachers misunderstand the law of God. That's what Paul is basically trying to say. So the question on the table is, what is the purpose of the law? Here it is, church family. The purpose of the law is to show us our need for a Savior. That's why we have the law. We have no chance of keeping the law perfectly. None of us do. We are born into this world sinners, both by nature and by choice. We are born here as sinners. The law, what it does, is it it exposes the sinner in us. This is how Paul said it in Romans chapter 5. He said, now the law came in to what? To increase the trespass. As we learn the law, we learn how great of a sinner we are. It increases the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what Paul was saying. He's saying the law is like an x-ray machine. Ever broken arm? You go and you put it up under the x-ray machine. What does the x-ray machine do? It exposes the problem. Your arm is broken. But guess what? You walk out of the x-ray room and you still have a broken arm. The law does not fix you. It only exposes the problem. False teachers want you to believe that the law will fix you. That means if you behave in a certain way, if you change that behavior, then surely God will accept you. It means if you're a drinker, you stop drinking. If you're a smoker, you stop smoking. Or if you you cuss, you quit cussing. If you don't read the Bible, you start reading the Bible. Even religious sacraments and things like that fall into this category. It's when you say, hey, Jesus isn't sufficient enough for me, so I need Jesus plus something else to make me in right standing before God. And Paul was saying that is absolutely not true. That Jesus has done everything necessary for your salvation. He and he alone is sufficient. You don't have to rest your faith on your own shoulders because there's no way that you could ever achieve the righteousness of God. Jesus has already done that for you. Isn't that good news? That's the true gospel. And here Paul says false teachers are teaching a different gospel that is actually no gospel at all. So what do we do as a church? If we want to be a healthy church, if we want to avoid false teaching, there are three things I believe we need to do. First, we need to prioritize the gospel daily. If this is the only time you get the gospel, once a week on a Sunday or even twice a week if you attend Wednesday nights, it's not enough we got to remind ourselves of the gospel daily. Listen, the gospel is not only the means by which you are saved. It also is how we grow and become more like Christ. We realize every day we have a growing need for Jesus and the gospel in our lives. So we have to prioritize the gospel daily, both individually as members of our church, but also collectively as a church. First, we have to do that. Second, we need to commit ourselves to gospel preaching. We have to commit ourselves to gospel 
preaching, that means we have to commit to prioritizing the local gathering of the church in our individual lives. It is said that the average church member attends the gathering of the church twice a month. And I just don't think if I showed up twice to anything a month that I would really be able to say that I'm committed to it. If my team practiced five times a week and I only came to two of them, I don't think my coach would say that I'm very bought into the life of that team. Now, why is the standard any different in the life of the church? We have to commit ourselves to the gathering of the saints for the purpose of encouraging ourselves and also refocusing and retuning and realigning ourselves with the gospel of Jesus. But there's another component to this. Not only do we have to gather together, but we need our, and again, I know this sounds self-serving. I'm just going to be the messenger, right? But we have to understand how God has ordered the local church to function. Your, your pastors, as they teach the word of God, should be the primary voices in your life. They should be. Not your podcast. Not even the authors of the books that you read. Those are supplemental to your faith. They're necessary components for you to grow as a child of God, but they don't replace the pastor's voice in your life. I love how Matt Chandler says it. Everything that we do here at Village Church is supplemental to your faith unless you're a part of our church. If you're not a part of our church, this is just helping you. But we want to help you get into a church. That's how he starts every single uh, online uh, sermon that he preaches. Commit ourselves to the gospel preaching, and then third, we have to be students of God's word. The only way that you're going to be able to put your finger to the pulse and tell if it's false teaching or not is you actually know what the real pulse is like. You need to know that 60-ish times per minute is when your heart's supposed to beat in order for you to know that if your heart's not beating correctly. So as we grow as students of the word and we are in a group and we're being grounded in the gospel every single day, that's when we'll start to be able to put our fingers to the pulse of false teaching and know that's not right. So as a church, we need to prioritize the gospel daily. We need to commit ourselves to the gospel preaching. And finally, we need to be a student of God's word.